Well, Father, we are grateful for your invitation uh, to participate in your mission, uh, to be stewards, to be servants, to be proclaimers of the good news um, in this time and in this place. Uh, this is your work and your mission, and you are the great king. And we, are, uh, we just delight uh, to walk with you and to join uh, into your work. Help us, God, to uh, reflect on our lives tonight, reflect on how we can intentionally engage in your mission. Lord, we pray that you would give all of us wisdom and creativity and insight and uh, maybe even some words to encourage one another. And uh, Lord, we just pray that we would uh, just have a sense of your presence and your shepherding and guiding tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everyone, come on in and take a seat. Oh, yeah. Well, my name is... um, My name is Jim Mullins, and uh, I'm a pastor at Redemption uh, Tempe, and I'm also on the leadership team for Surge, and I have the the privilege of of facilitating our night and speaking a little bit, uh, just to let you know a little bit about what we're going to do tonight and where we're going with things. Uh, my hope tonight is that we're going to have a, some, some time of reflecting on God's mission, and then we're also going to have time where you can tangibly reflect on your life and ways that you can intentionally engage in that mission more. Um, we're, going to have, we're going to close with a panel. And uh, my hope is that there will be a lot of movement from like a little bit of teaching up here, some discussion there. I may call on you and, and, and ask for uh, a little bit of, uh, of dialogue and those sorts of things. Um, so before we do that, let me go ahead and just tell you a little bit about myself, why I'm up here, so on and so forth. Um, you should know, I want to let you know my academic credentials. We've had uh, some very intelligent, sharp, Um, professorial type of people up here Um, and you should know that with me you can trust me because I have some academic rigor as well as a matter of fact I have my GED from the from the finest public library in Arizona which is the Chandler Public Library so just so you know where things are coming from tonight Um, but a little bit about my story. I grew up around here. I came to, to, to know Jesus after I shattered my elbow as a football player and moved from idol to idol to idol before God finally just got a hold of me and showed me that uh, the, the hedonistic lifestyle, football, even good grades and those things uh, at one point, these were all idols that would, um, uh, that would, never, that would always dissatisfied, that they were not what I was created for. And I came to know Christ when I was in high school. And God got a hold of my group of friends, um, of the group of friends that were, were hanging out with us. Um, it's, there's a stark contrast. Either um, they went to prison or are homeless currently or currently walk with Jesus. 
God just intervened into our lives and the gospel spread amongst our group of friends. And it was a, it was a pretty incredible and rich time. Um, to, a few years later, actually like a year and a half, two years later, uh, I was going to school at Mesa Community College and it was my first week of school. It was my first week of college, really my first week as an adult. And what happened on that week? It was the week of 9-11. And I was very shaped by that. I stepped into the hallway, and then I began to see the planes crash into the buildings. And I went home, and I probably watched television, I want to say probably six, seven hours a day, watching news about what was going on in uh, Afghanistan, in Iraq, the fallout of everything. And it began to cultivate in me um, a real sense that, uh, that, that I was not so much being shaped by Jesus and following Jesus, but I was sort of a disciple of the television. And it was shaping me. And the way it began to shape me is I had very hostile feelings towards my Muslim neighbors. So hostile that I can't even repeat some of the things that I was saying about them in that day. And um, I had some friends, some faithful friends come up to me and challenge me. They basically said, listen, if you're going to talk like that about people made in God's image, then you either have two, you have two options. You can repent because you are offending the God, the creator of the whole universe, when you insult his image bearers like that. Or you can just disassociate yourself with Jesus altogether because you are giving him a bad name. Which that led to, to repentance. And through that repentance, what God did is uh, basically challenged me to actually meet a Muslim. <laughs> Believe it or not, I hadn't met any Muslim folks. Um, and so what that snowballed into is mo me moving into the international student neighborhood near ASU and inviting a bunch of friends to join me. We started a little community there called the Moravian community. Um, if you know about the Moravians back in the day, they were wild folks who sold themselves into slavery to proclaim the gospel and to be friends with, with slaves. And they, uh, they, they packed all their stuff in coffins so that they could, when they went overseas, they said, we'll never come back, so we're going to be buried in the place where we're going. But anyway, I, I didn't know why I named it that. I was just reading a book one day, and we named it the Moravian Community. That's not a big deal. Um, there may be a few rabbit trails tonight, and I apologize for that. I'm like a poster child for ADD, but... Um, this community was about 20 people, grew to be about 100 people, who moved into this neighborhood, and our aim was to pray together fervently, to extend hospitality to our international neighbors who were coming to America, and, and in particular Muslims, um, to live as their neighbors and build friendships, uh, to be a community that together would bear witness to, to who Jesus is by the way we loved one another to be a community that proclaimed the good news and, and talked about Jesus everywhere we went and invited people to know him. And then we had this goal that we would eventually go overseas. Uh, some of us would go overseas 
and uh, have teams that would, would go there. So we, uh, we did. We had about 20 or so people go overseas. My wife and I, we lived in uh, Turkey. We led the first team. My daughter was born in Turkey. And while in Turkey, it was a really rich experience. Um, I, I was doing some business as mission. I was a basketball scout while I was there. My wife worked at a university. And we, would, uh, we, would, we slowly kind of became known as people who loved to strategize and creatively think of unique ways that we could love our neighbors. And so uh, we were invited to different cities throughout the, the region where other believers were, and they would invite us to talk, to just dream with them and brainstorm with them uh, ways that they could love their neighbors and share the good news and things like that. So some of what we learned in that experience is shaping what we are talking about tonight. When people go overseas to be ambassadors for Jesus, they often are very intentional. They often go through a lot of training and they, they think through their life and how they can shape their life in such a way that they can uh, most intentionally participate with God in his mission. And so that's really the hope tonight. I want to help us just take some time to intentionally think about how we can uh, increase in, 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 in our thoughtfulness and in in the particular decisions we're making to engage in God's mission. Before I jump into some of those things, I want to uh, throw a question out to you that you would discuss um, with a few people around you. Uh, and the, the question is this, what are the greatest barriers to participating in God's mission? And you can make that everything from, you know, super spiritual, like sp spiritual warfare, Satan's trying to stop it, to like, my, my iPhone calendar doesn't work very well. So just brainstorm those things. Have, have a discussion with each other, and then we'll come back and discuss in a moment. No. Thank you. Okay, let's, uh, let's go ahead and discuss as a room. Call it out. What are some of those big obstacles? Finances? Finances. Tell me about that. What's challenging about Finances. Hmm. Or they're afraid to ask the church to support them or other people to support them. They feel like it's begging. So I think it gets away a lot. Sure, sure. Yeah, even it, when people have ideas of, of starting a venture that would be blessing uh, in their neighborhood, yeah, finances can be a challenge. Go ahead. And the idol of busyness. The idol of busyness. Wow. It's a... That's something we need to repent of. Yeah. Um, got disoriented because I'm a little convicted. Anyone else, anyone else want to share? Culture? How so? What's that? Yeah, like there... Yeah, there are cultures that are shaped in ways that... Uh, are opposed to the gospel. Yeah. Go ahead. Someone? Age. Hmm? Age. 
Age? How does how does age a factor? Absolutely. Let's do maybe two more. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm not going to resolve those things tonight. <laughs> That's my promise. Um, but those are real things, and it's important that we name them now before the Lord. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and pray for those things. And we will have those in the back of our mind. We need to be thinking about those, engaging those. Some of those are going to come up tonight. Um, but I really do want to pray for these things. And then, um, and then we'll, we'll start diving into what is God's mission. Father, we, um, we just want to name these things. Busyness. And it is, it is an idol. You are the only God worthy of worship, and, and, and not that. Fear. God, we, you are the only one who's worthy of our fear. Rejection. God, we have been welcomed by the Trinitarian God and accepted uh, in you because of our union with Christ. What can man do to us? Culture, Lord, there are, there are uh, idols built into every culture, including our own. Help us to see what those idols are and the ways that they are uh, opposed to who you are. And Lord, with all of these things tonight, we know that they are real, but we really, God, want to participate in what you're doing in this city and in this world and throughout biblical history your story of redemption and reconciling all things. So we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I think is a major obstacle to mission, to engaging in God's mission, is a little bit of schizophrenia with um, what is his mission. There are a lot of people out there who are making claims and statements about what it is. It's church planting. It's caring for, it's, it's engaging sex trafficking. It's doing evangelism. It's pursuing justice. It's um, engaging the academic realm. It's uh, serving the poor. It's reaching the least reached people. It's eradicating malaria and Ebola. It's community development. What else? Can you think of anything else that we hear? It's engaging in public life, uh, doing work for the glory of God. It's raising families. It's translating the Bible. And I think part of the challenge that we have is that there can be a little bit of a schizophrenia that we have where we're just bouncing back and forth or, or, or just confusion of what, what is it? Is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is it that? And I want to propose to you that instead of saying 
that mission is one of these things and it's not the other. That the mission of the Bible is so vast and so sprawling and so beautiful that it has a place for all of these things. And that we don't need to chase the trend or figure out which one of these is ranked more important than the other. But there is a sense in which we need to uh, honor all these things and value them, but also have a sense of focus. So tonight I'm going to ask you to pick an area of your life that you will focus on. So be thinking about that already. But one thing that's, that is pushing against us in the, our culture is that we have an either-or culture. An either-or culture that makes us want to choose between good things. Church planting or pursuing justice. Proclaiming the gospel or demonstrating the gospel. And it's not the way of the world. The way God has made the world is that it's a very integrated world. And that you, you're not called to rank these things over each other. Let me just, let me ask a few questions. We'll take a little survey. When I was a kid, we used to play this game. We played two games, two, two broke people games that we used to play quite a bit. One game was uh, called That's My Car, where we used to sit on the side of the, the curb and we would throw out a number. We'd say like 17, and then the 17th car that would come would be That's, that's My Car. But the other game we played is Would You Rather? Would you rather, would you rather like sleep in a bed with scorpions or be hitting the toes with a baseball bat for 100 straight days or something like that? <laughs> um, so we're going to play a little would you rather in here. Would you rather stay at a bed or a breakfast? So not a bed and breakfast, but a bed or breakfast. So you go there and you can either have a great meal, but you got to sleep outside, or you can have a nice, comfortable bed, and, uh, but you can't have anything to eat. Who would take the bed? Who would take the breakfast? Well, there you go. Um, okay, so the, the next question is, you go to a Chinese food restaurant, and you ask for sweet and sour chicken. They said no. We have sweet or sour chicken. You have to choose. Who, who would take sweet? Who would take sour? What are you guys thinking? That'd be awful. <laughs> um, would you rather drive a car that, if you could only choose one pedal, a gas pedal or a brake? Who would take the gas? These people wouldn't be alive. Who would take the break? All right. There you go. So what, what do these things do? These things, these, it's silly, but what it does is it shows the silliness of the lack of integrity or it really shows the importance of the integrity of certain things coming together. You want sweet and sour. You want the bed and breakfast. You want all of those things. You want to have your cake and eat it too. I never understood that statement. It'd be awful to have a cake and just walk it around, <laughs> but you, you were never allowed to eat it. 
And it's really the same way with God's mission. All of those things that we mentioned are a part of God's mission, are integral parts of God's mission. And we could state God's mission in a number of ways, but I think one of the best places to look is Colossians 1. If you have a Bible, feel free to open up. It's also on the top of your handout. Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 20. And it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Now, what you should know about the context of this passage is this was likely a hymn that was, was recited and sung that people would know in the church of that day. And that this little obscure town of, of Colossae, that, that um, I've actually had a chance to, having lived in Turkey, visit where it was before. And, and it was in the middle of the Roman world. You can imagine the church being this small church, wondering how to make sense of, of the world and how to have such a big mission in light of all that they would see. See, they were living in, under the Roman Empire, this massive empire of idolatry that wasn't just this, uh, had this little private worldview, but it had this holistic worldview that said, you can believe whatever you want to believe on your own, but the way things get done, the way people have peace, the way that flourishing happens is through the Roman Empire. It was called the Pax Romana, the peace that would come through Rome, often through military might. And they were dependent on these idols, these gods of the day. There was Epaphrodite, the god of sex. There was Hephaestus, the god of technology. There was Mars, the god of war. Plutos, the god of wealth. Bacchus, the god of pleasure. We don't call them by the same name, but these gods are present and being worshipped and bowed down to in our culture. And so Paul is writing an instruction to people who are surrounded by all of these idols. And what he could have said is, get out of there. Go just go into the woods and start your own little community. He, he could have said sex and wealth and, and, um, and technology, that these are all evil and you just need to abstain from them. But what actually happens is Paul writes these words that speaks of what God's cosmic purpose is in the world. If you look at this passage, it repeats something over and over again, and it's 
Can anyone know what it is? Just what's, what do you see over and over again? The word that's over. What's that? He is. He is. That's, that's true. What else? All. Yeah, all things. That he is not a private little God, but he is a God whose plan is to reconcile all things. That Jesus created the world. That the world was created good. But what happened with the fall is that things began to fall apart. We individually were alienated from God. And when Adam and Eve took that fruit, they gave the middle finger to God. And they, they, moved, they moved away from Him. And that there's social brokenness as, as well. Adam and Eve in the garden, they began to, to blame each other. And that was just the first domino in, in a, a whole array of dominoes of social brokenness. What happened and began in the garden with Adam uh, and, and Eve blaming each other and, and hiding from each other and arguing with each other, that first marital spat in the garden is what's present today. We know that there in, in, in the streets around, or in the houses around our house, that somebody is writing an email that's going to end a friendship and speak words that are so cutting that they're going to devastate someone. There's, there's a husband about to hit a spouse, probably happening right now. There's uh, someone in a lab somewhere who's figuring out how to make certain foods more addictive or scheme ways to steal money from others. But there's also physical brokenness as well. We, we see that there's brokenness, uh, physical brokenness that comes from the fall, the, the, the curse of, of work being painful and hard and childbirth and there being thorns and thistles, the word, world now filled with pain and physical brokenness. Just down the road, we have Phoenix Children's Hospital. I cannot, I cannot name a place that tears me up like that place. When I walk through there, I just, it just it's not the way it should be. To see a three-year-old kid going through chemotherapy and, and, uh, and to see uh, parents walking out of a room sobbing because of what they heard, it is not the way it should be. The God who created us made us to flourish with him. We took the hands he gave us and the skill he gave us and the mind he gave us and we carved little statues and bowed down to it and bowed down to any other number of idols that we engage with today. It's messed up. It's not the way it should be. And the Colossian church was feeling the effects of that profoundly as they looked around. But they heard the words of God's cosmic mission, the goal of history, what God is doing through Christ. For in Him, all the fullness of God, that is in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to, to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. All things. Whether on earth or, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Can anyone name something that's not uh, in heaven or on earth? It's pretty expansive. And it's not saying every person gets saved in the end. We often... Uh, choose our idols and God lets us stay with our idols for all of eternity 
and that is called hell. But God will not lose his physical creation. He will not lose the social way that he made for us to interact and relate. He will not lose having a relationship with people in a flourishing earth. And so this mission that God is doing through Jesus is to eventually reconcile, uh, uh, to impart, do the work in the cross of reconciling all things and eventually fully restoring all things and making all things new. That's his mission. It's not our mission. It is not our mission. But what a gift to be able to join in with him and participate in that mission. He doesn't need us, but we get to be co-workers with the king of the world, the creator of the world, the one who steps into Phoenix Children's Hospital and says, no more. The one who will one day kick down all the idols and show himself fully as the God that we've been longing to see face to face. The, the God who will reconcile the, the, uh, the friends, the best friends who became enemies and who will now become brothers and sisters again in Christ. And how do we participate in that now? How are we a sign of what's to come? And, and what are the ways in which we engage? And I want to propose to you three different mandates that you'll find all through Scripture. These mandates that God invites us into. These three mandates that God says, I'm creating a people, and I want my people to do these things to point to me and to participate in my mission. Now, you can frame these in a lot of different ways. This isn't perfect. This isn't, you know, Scripture. But there are really, I'm naming three ways, that, that uh, three mandates that you'll find throughout the Bible. You can see the little diagram that I had um, someone else draw on that first page there, and then you may have noticed I had Laura come up and draw this one because I'm so bad, it, I can't even draw three overlapping circles. But let me walk you through the three mandates that we see. First of all, the stewardship mandate. The stewardship mandate rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. And what is this? This is about pointing to the glory of the Father by reflecting his image in all of life. Pointing to the glory of the Father by reflecting his image in all of life. Before sin even entered the world, God gave a mission to his people, to the people created in his image. Before there was even sin in the world, before evangelism was even a thing, before there, were, there was even poor or injustice to engage. But God created unique people who are in his own image. Basically that we would be mirrors to magnify his greatness to the cosmos and to each other. He gave a commission that's often called the cultural mandate to, um, to subdue and to have dominion over the earth and to it says specifically in Genesis 2.15 that God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. In other words, he gave us the work of culture making. When, when cre he, you look out over creation, what does God say about it over and over and over again? 
It's good. It's good. But in verse 31, when he's talking about after all of creation has been created, God talks about, and humans are made, they're unique in his image, and what does he say after that? It's very good. In other words, God put humans on this earth to display what he is like, his attributes, to mirror him through the good work we do, and to take creation from the raw material of good with the hands he gave us to make it very good. A maple tree, good. Maple syrup, very good. A pig, good. Bacon, very good. Yeah. Uh, a, an oak tree, a good. A beautiful, handcrafted table that families will gather around and share their greatest memories for generations, very good. And so God is intended to be seen and his, his attributes displayed through the work, the cultural work of humans. How does that, what does that look like? Well, how do we know what God is like? We only know what God is like through analogy. Through analogy. We know ultimately scripture is the way God reveals who he is, but what does it say about him? It says that he communicates. He, he loves. He's faithful. He creates. He provides. But how do we have any reference for those things apart from his creation? And what we have in the people in this room are image bearers, mirrors to show what God is like through what we do every day. Let me just ask you a question. What are some of the attributes of God that you adore the most? His patience. Good. Compassion. Compassion. Wonderful. His creativity. Wonderful. Faithfulness. What is that? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Wonderful. His grace. His grace. Yeah. And what I want to propose to you is that a part of our mission that's... Re- rooted in Genesis 1 and 2, is to magnify those characteristics through the way that we engage the world. In other words, like my friend Andy, he's worked in the same neighborhood, at the same job, for 28 years, serving people faithfully. And there's something beautiful, isn't there, about faithfulness that you see in human beings? like day in, day out, to steadily, over and over again, do the same thing, serve the same people. And we, there's something that happens within us that we enjoy that, we delight in that. There's something about us that says, that's good. And what that's doing is it's us actually honoring the image of God that's being reflected in others. And so a part of our mission is to make art grow gardens, faithfully work in places, provide for others, demonstrate creativity, demonstrate wisdom, 
a teacher who knows, uh, has a vast understanding of the, of the content that he's teaching or she's teaching, but also knows the students well. All of these attributes of God that can be seen in the Bible and also read about in a systematic theology will never get in the hands of many of the people in the world. But God has put his living mirrors or his little, his embodied systematic theologies to walk around in the world and say, I want to show you faithfulness. I want to show you creativity. I want to show you uh, compassion and wisdom. Because, and it's not, I'm not the source. God is the source. So that's the stewardship mandate. This is all about doing your work well, engaging in your neighbor's public life, just the all-of-life aspect that we've been talking about through Surge. Then you have the service mandate. And the service mandate is pointing to the love of God in Christ through acts of self-giving service. So a thread that you see throughout Scripture and predominantly exemplified in the life of Christ is not just that we're, we're called to just do these, these uh, to work well and do these rich works and, and make beautiful art and all those things and make April, maple syrup out of maple trees. That is really good. But there's another element, too, of intentionally taking what we have and pouring ourselves out for the sake of another. To die to ourself, to, to have stuff that we have uh, acquired and, and, and uh, allocated for ourselves and to pour it out for the sake of another. And when we do that, we dramatize the work of Christ on the cross. We demonstrate what he does. We do a little drama of Christ on the cross everywhere we go when we pour ourselves out for the sake of the other. When we take our time, our money, our resources, uh, our, 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 the knowledge that we've gained, our training, our privilege, our, uh, our networks and relationships, and we creatively think about how we can pour them out for the sake of another. In that, we point to Jesus on the cross. And finally, the speaking mandate. The speaking mandate is that we point the way to God through the verbal proclamation of the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That God's people are called to open our mouths in this great gift of language that he's given us. To put words together to speak of how incredible this God is. To, um, I, I'll tell you, I have a, my stepdad growing up. He, he used to do two awful things. One was he would watch basketball games, Suns games, back when they were good and they didn't have Marquise Morris. Um, they, he would watch those games on mute. It would drive me nuts. How can you watch a basketball game on mute and not hear what's going on there? But then he would do something equally annoying, is that everywhere he would drive, he would listen to the game on the radio. So it was like he couldn't handle both of them. We are called to be both show and tell people. We're called to show what's happening in the game through the way that we live our lives. But we're also called to open our mouths and have commentary. And, and when you taste that great maple syrup, to say that that came from God, a God who 
came and walked among us and died for you and is resurrected and is renewing all of creation, including those maple trees that you're destroying or something like that. We're called to point to the self-giving love of Christ and verbally articulate it when it's demonstrated in others. And that when people encounter the brokenness of this world, to open our mouths and say that that is not the way it is supposed to be. That that comes from sin, and there's a God who is, is dealt with that and will ultimately deal with that, and you need to know him. And what I want to propose is that all of these three aren't to be ranked with each, uh, against each other, but really work together uh, in harmony with each other to display what God is like. So one of the things I've, I've thought about is um, uh, music. A lot of people view music kind of like you would view a rock band, right? Where you have, you have like six people in the rock band. Like, what's a rock band? That has, uh, let's say U2. I don't know many rock bands. But with the rock band, what do you have? You have someone who's the singer who's up front, and then you have two or three other people who are playing other instruments in the back. And those guys are good and those guys are fine, but the one who's doing the really important work is the one who's singing, and it's kind of all about either the preacher or whatnot. But I would say that that's not a good metaphor to think about mission. But the way we should think about mission is we should think about it as a symphony. Because a symphony, the, there's not a, one person that gets all the credit except the conductor. And each person is given their own instrument. They're given their own instrument, and these instruments harmonize together. And each of us has been given, a, I believe, some particular places, some particular gifts in a particular time that we're not called to figure out which one's the best, the most important one, but what are the good works that Jesus created me for, for the, before the foundation of the world? To be intentional in all of these and to bring them all together along with all the saints in your church and all the churches in the city and all the city churches throughout the world and to together play something beautiful for those who are on looking uh, something beautiful for the nations about the glory of our God. So we're going to dive into each of these three individually. I'm going to lead you into some exercises to help you think through what it looks like in your life. But what I want to do first is I want to give you uh, a few moments to uh, discuss with some people around you um, where you're, you want to focus. So I'm going to ask you tonight to choose a missional focus. One aspect of your life that you're going to think about throughout the course of the night, that you're going to reflect on throughout the course of the night, and um, it could be a group of people that you spend time with, it could be the place where you spend the most time, it can be your work, your neighborhood, those sorts of, those sorts of things. So choose one of those, um, discuss with uh, your neighbor what that would be, and, and kind of share with each other some ideas. Um, I hope a few of you choose uh, your work and a few of you choose neighborhood so we can have a conversation about both. But go ahead and discuss with each other and discuss what that might be. And we're going to carry that through the end of the night, so be sure to choose wisely. So go. Call out a few of them. I'd love to hear from you. What's your missional focus going to be? Neighborhood, your work, something else? Recreation, group, affinity? 
work? Where you work? Excellent. W wonderful. That's good. Anyone else? Yeah. What I've noticed is people, my coworkers, were not stirring our affection for Jesus Christ. When I'm mm. about Christ daily and what He's doing in our lives. Yeah. It's more of a, it seems like more of a personal walk than a group walk with mm. Christ. You know, so that's cool. something God's put on my heart. Yeah. The affections of Jesus for my coworkers as well as myself. Good. Did anyone choose an area, like a neighborhood or? Your kid's school. Great. Chris? Which, what neighborhood? Uh, I live right across from Metro Center. Cool. Very good. So let me uh, walk you through what it has looked like when, I, when I've kind of connected with other people and walked them through this and how they've intentionally made some decisions um, and how they've thought through these things. So uh, I, I became friends with a, a few sanitation truck drivers um, who said that this is going to be their place of, of focus. And what was really cool about that is that not a lot of people uh, aspire to be, to, to drive garbage trucks, um, mainly because our culture does not have a good view of work. But it's a very noble work. But these guys, amongst their workers, uh, their, their co-workers, had an incredible passion for what they did. Why? Because of the stewardship mandate. They were filled with joy as they drove around, more joy than their other co-workers. Why? Because they had thought through and said, what am I doing in this work? Well, I'm doing nothing less than stewarding God's world. With every house that I go to, and I put the trash in the back of my truck, I am caring for God's world. Abraham Kuyper said that over every inch of creation, Jesus declares, mine. And for the various inches that they were driving, they were caring for those and, and pulling away the potential uh, harmful uh, effects that would happen to people. They were sustaining and protecting the lives of people. Because if trash began to accumulate on the streets and if it wasn't for their work, what would happen? There would be rampant disease. Uh, the smell would be bad. It would be not inhabitable, and the, the physical place would begin to communicate to people uh, a lack of, of dignity. And so by picking up that trash, they are saying, this is God's world, and I'm going to care for it. That, that the people who live in the city are created in God's image, and I'm going to care for them by taking away the potential uh, uh, decomposing things that would promote disease and put them in the hospital. I'm going to take away the harmful things so that their children can play in the streets. And over every inch of the ground that they drove over, and with every trash can, if as that as that uh, that big claw grabs the trash can and dumps it into the back of the truck, they might that claw might as well be lifting its hand up to heaven to Jesus, because that's what they were doing in serving Him. But they were also very intentional uh, with the stewardship mandate as well, and they were in the service mandate. They were intentional and thoughtful about what would it look like to sacrifice myself, 
to pour myself out for the sake of my coworkers. So they intentionally chose the hardest routes. The, the, the routes where it's really hard to drive and to get around and things. And they, they chose those so that the younger folks could have the easier routes. They started mentoring programs and, and poured out their lives in, uh, for uh, those younger uh, drivers or just the other people in their office, spending time with them, helping them move, things like that. But they were very intentional and thoughtful in the way that they did that. But also, with the speaking mandate, they took 1 Peter 3.15 very seriously when it talks about prepare to have a defense. To, so they, they thought ahead of time, what are the questions people are asking and how can I articulate the gospel uh, in ways that make sense and the ways that have rich metaphors that we're interacting with every day. So they, if someone were to ask them about about their faith, because they're obviously living different, because they're driving these trucks around with so much joy. They're pouring themselves out for the sake of others. And they thought about metaphors, redemptive analogies that were embedded in the work that they did that people were interacting with every day and could have described the gospel like this. They could have said, they could have taken their coworker to the back of the truck and they say, what do you see back there? What you see is death, and decomposition, and brokenness. And you see in the back of our truck evidence of a world falling apart. And you know what's broken and decaying in there is happening to you too. And it's happening to the whole world. You can feel it in your knees when it's hard to walk in the mornings. And that there is something wrong in this world, and it's called sin. It's, ref it's, it's impacting the physical world that we see back here. It's affecting our social lives and it affects our spiritual lives because we were made for God, but we settle for finding our whole delight in the Super Bowl, in our work, in the way people treat us. But there's something greater something that we were made for, the source of our joy, which is the God who created us. But here's the thing about that God. He didn't just stand and look at our brokenness from a distance, but he stepped into it. He stepped into the garbage truck. He stepped into it and just didn't in, in experience the brokenness of it with us. But just as that trash compactor crushes what is in there, Jesus was crushed on the cross so that we could be reconciled to him and renewed and we can live before him and flourish in a creation where there will be no more death, no more decay, no more brokenness and those sorts of things. And they were looking for the rich analogies that were embedded in their work and thinking about thoughtfully how to communicate the gospel to others. I'll do one more and then we'll, we'll take a little break. Um, my friend John. My friend John cuts hair for a living. And he is one of the most theologically thoughtful people I've ever met in my life. He, when he does his work, he does his work with excellence. He masters his craft. He tries to show the creativity of God through the way he works. The faithfulness 
the, the, the God who pays attention to every detail and knows every hair on our head. Josh wa- or, uh, John wants to, to reflect him by knowing the hairs on people's heads. He knows that God put Adam in the garden and gave him a little garden to work it and to keep it. And John sees that his little plot of the garden is the little heads that sit before him. That's the part of God's world that he's going to care for. And he is good. He's like really good. He's so good, I went in there to get a haircut one time, and that dude charged me $50. Like, that's how good he is. I haven't really been back much, but... (laughs) And this isn't his work, so don't worry. He's better than that. But then he's also very thoughtful about the service mandate, knowing that Jesus poured himself out for us. So what does it look like for him to imitate Christ, to display Christ to the world, to dramatize what happened in the gospel through the way he works, his missional context, his missional focus, being that little studio where he works? Well, he said, I'm going to to absorb some financial pain myself and just charge Jim $50, but... He's going to, I'm going to absorb some financial pain myself by when the the economic downturn happened and people were out of jobs left and right. He decided that he was going to um, give a haircut for free to people who were going for job interviews. To see them flourish, to see them get jobs and do well. He was loving his neighbor well at cost to himself. And in doing so, showing the world, the one who at cost to himself went to the cross so that we would flourish, so that we would know God. And when it comes to the speaking mandate, I don't know exactly how he articulates the gospel. All I know is that he does. Because at our church, I, have n- I don't know of anyone who's led more people to Christ. I mean, he's got a captive audience and some sharp objects, but I don't think that's what it is. <laughs> that uh, when they sit there in that chair, that becomes, in many ways, uh, he's like their counselor, but they pour their hearts out to him. He asks good questions. He's very thoughtful about getting to know them and their life, and he speaks good news into the areas of brokenness that they experience. So what I really hope, and, I, and we're not going to get through everything in the packet, but we have uh, exercises in there and some ways to... Um, sort of imagine those things for your life. And we're going to work through those when we come back in a minute. But I want us to take, let's take a, let's take a five, let's take a, let's take a six minute break. <laughs> um, and, and it's a shorter break because we're going to get people moving around quite a bit. But uh, let's say 725, let's be back in this room and we'll continue from here. But go ahead and just take a break for six minutes. So let me start with talking a a little bit deeper about the stewardship mandate. We're going to work through all three of these. Um, Go ahead, if you have a Bible around, open up to Genesis 1. The stewardship mandate, let me repeat the, the definition of this. This is pointing to the glory of God by reflecting His attributes and actions in every area of life. Not just church life. Not just 
nonprofit life, not just work life, all of life. Genesis 1, like we've mentioned before, what is often referred to as the cultural mandate, after God has created everything over six days, created uh, oxygen and oceans and, uh, and, and birds and wood and microbes and all those things, he saw that it was good. <clears throat> and then verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. First thing I want to uh, talk about there is, the, is, is dominion and, su- and subdue, the, the language that is used here. A lot of times people will use that as, as this is license to just do whatever you want to the earth, to destroy the earth, to do whatever you want with it. But I think it's important that while these, these words do have a connotation of you are to put your hands in the dirt and rearrange things, you're to have some level of control in the world and harnessing uh, what God hid the potential that God hid in the earth and to draw that out and to cultivate it. A lot of people think that it's this word dominion is domination. That this is just a buffet of stuff to use however you want. But what we need to see is that um, this is before sin ever enters the world and that we are created in God's likeness. And how does God have dominion? That's our template. When we think of the word dominion, we tend to think of these generals, like uh, the, 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 these generals uh, like Genghis Khan and things like that, uh, uh, Napoleon, these, these military people who conquered the world. But we are not made in the likeness of Genghis Khan. We are made in the likeness of God. And what does God look like when he has rulership and dominion over us? He rules over us and he rules over creation and the activity he does causes it to flourish. It draws the potential out of it. It doesn't diminish it. And so as image bearers of God, the way we have dominion is in such a way that human hands do rearrange the world. We're not like the biblical worldview is not the worldview that says leave nature to itself. It's better off without humans but it's actually better with humans who have the minds of good stewards who rearrange it to make it flourish, to demonstrate God's majesty, and to serve others. The other thing we wanna, I want to note here is verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of, of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him them. It's very intentional to say that men and women are image bearers of God. And earlier today we said that it was, uh, we talked about what God said about creation. He said it was good. And then when he created humans, uh, after he created everything, he says it's very good. But he also says that there's something that's not good. And it's that man was alone. 
that, that man could not bear the image of God to fulfill the stewardship mandate to display what God is like without both men and women. Then we see in verse uh, 28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And what's incredible here is that there are two dimensions of the stewardship mandate. There's a domestic dimension and a public dimension or a a cultural dimension, you could say, that we are called basically to do two things. Fill the earth with babies, (laughs) be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth with good culture, have dominion over the world. Now, when it's saying, I, I think part of the reason why it's saying to, to, to be fruitful and multiply and have families in this domestic life is essentially, what are you doing? You're filling the earth with more and more image bearers. The goal of creation is to display what God is like through the works of, of his people That's, and as we bear his image. And we do that both in our domestic responsibilities, both you know, fathers and mothers and children displaying the nature of the Trinitarian God as they relate to each other and cultivate a home. Also, it has a public dimension of of filling the earth with good things, filling the earth with... Just think about how beautiful and incredible of, of, of some of the amazing things are that are happening right now. That have happened through human hands. Could we be meeting in this room had someone not figured out tinkering with fire and the ground and those sorts of things, how electricity would work? And then over many years, uh, developing uh, the craft of the electrician who works with the craft of the, the architect, of the contractor, of the people who create the supplies so that in this room right now we can have a discussion where my voice is being amplified through electricity. We're able to see our Bibles and those sorts of things. If someone were to see what's just happening in this room like 200, 300 years ago, if they were to be like sucked into this room from, from, the, pa- from, from the past and they're brought into the future, they would think some sort of magic is happening, like some sort of black magic where you, things are illuminated and voices are sounding like the voice of God and those sorts of things. But really what is happening is humans are using their God-given gifts and are cultivating the potential that God had embedded in creation. And I, one, one more thing. I, told, I promised you a rabbit trail. Here's a rabbit trail. How generous is God when he showed restraint to not make every person that would ever be made in the beginning and to not make everything that would ever be made in the beginning. But rather what he did is he showed restraint by not making everything and saying, come and join me. I'm still the one who makes it. He's still the one who's the author of life, who brings people into this world, makes people. But we get to play a role in that, in raising those those people, those children. 
He's still the one who makes electricity and uh, architecture and this building and everything. But he shows restraint in not making all of it at once, but choosing to make it through our hands. And that if you see good work, it has an aesthetic quality to it where you're drawn to it and you say, that is good. And it's a hint, it's an echo of the God behind it. As God's image bearers, we seek to reflect his actions and attributes through our daily activities. What we're doing is we're dramatizing the character of God in the stewardship mandate. The aim of the stewardship mandate is to reflect his brilliance by the way we work, play, raise our families, engage in civic life. So that the world says, what is unique about those people? The stewardship uh, mandate is about living a beautiful and intriguing life under the rule of God that evokes questions. Now people, all people are made in God's image, not just believers. And so you will see glimpses of the majesty of God and the stewardship mandate in some way being fulfilled by those who don't know Christ. This is called the doctrine of of common grace. But how much more should those of us who know the God of the universe who read about the way he ordered the world in Scripture and want to honor him and worship him, devote ourselves to the work of making good culture and making beautiful things in in the world, of working hard, of displaying faithfulness and wisdom and knowledge. You see, this is actually one thread of the legacy of Christianity that wherever the gospel tends to go, um, in, in, in many places, some of the most life-giving institutions are created. Hospitals emerge out of people who are made in the image of God and know that he is the God who heals. The God who moves toward the sick instead of the, away from the sick. Universities flow from this biblical worldview. Some of the best music from the gospel music that, that birthed uh, blues and jazz to, um, to the classical music that people tell me is good, but I don't fully understand it. Those people were, so many of them were gripped by this vision of, of who God is and how to display him to others through the work of their hands. But over the last hundred years, it seems that we've lost that as part of the church has split and it has gone, the, the sort of the mainline liberal side of the church has gone, and not all of it, but there's a tendency to say, we're not believing that Bible stuff anymore, but we're going to apply ourselves to lots of good works in the world. But then there was also a reactionary split of fundamentalism that said, you can take the hospitals, the universities, the culture, the, the maple syrup. We're going to devote ourselves to spiritual things and only focused on the, ver- the, the, the vertical relationship with God and spiritualized everything. But we need to recover this vision of bringing both of them together again. And, and the way we do that is by reading the beginning of our Bible, the very first pages. Um, it's about a life that's rightly ordered, God-centered, um, but not necessarily successful in the world's eyes. If you do this well, it may cause some problems for you. The stewardship mandate is about drawing the potential out of creation to display the brilliance of God. And and I'll illustrate that with this quote that James K. Smith said. He said, God's glory 
is most multiplied and expanded when all of the rich potential of his creation is unfolded and unpacked into the life-giving institutions that contribute to its flourishing. In a way, you could say that God has commissioned us to be his image bearers in order to help him show off his glory in what he has made. What we're doing in this mandate is we're giving people a little taste, a little morsel of what God is like and what the fullness of his kingdom is is like. C.S. Lewis said this profound quote, and I'm sure many have heard it before. And he's talking here about, he's in this dialogue about what would, what, what, what would show what God is like to the world? What would it take to be converted to an, an, another faith? What would really rock people? And what he says is, what we want is not more little books about Christianity, but more little books uh, by Christians on other subjects with their Christianity latent. You can see this most easily if you look at the, it the other way around. Our faith is not very likely to be shaken by any book on Hinduism. But if whenever we read an elementary book on geology, botany, politics, or astronomy, we found that its implications were Hindu, that would shake us. It is not the books written in direct defense of materialism that make the modern man a materialist. It is the materialistic assumptions in all other books. In the same way, it is not the books on Christianity that will will really trouble him, but he would be troubled if whenever he wanted a cheap popular introduction to some science, the best work on the market was always by a Christian. What if everywhere people went, they found the best, most trustworthy landscaper? who made the most creative designs and faithfully cared for every rock in that place was a Christian? What if they, they found that the best farmers who grew the best, uh, healthiest food, and yeah, they, they make mistakes from time to time, but they apply themselves to what they do and have a unique devotion that doesn't seem to come from anywhere else but God? What if the, the best teachers... What if, like I've experienced, the best people who, who do like therapy with, with those who um, are on the autism spectrum, like my daughter, what if the, what if the best people who ran for city council and spoke in, in the most honoring terms and worked well with others and thought of the best policies and were, were faithful, what if those things were coming from Christians like they have in these key points of history? What would it do? It would put the glory of God and his nature on display. They would see his creativity, his kindness, his wisdom, his knowledge, his faithfulness, his beauty, his restoration. So what does that look like for you in your life, in your particular missional focus that you're, you're thinking of tonight. So here's the, the, the activity I want you to do. I want you to um, take a few moments, and I have this, page, I have this activity on page three, um, and it has on the left-hand column a list of some of God's attributes. And I want you to uh, talk with the people around you about what it would look like to intentionally display that attribute of God 
through, through uh, or in whatever context you've chosen. So look at those attributes and brainstorm ways that you could intentionally display that attribute of God in the particular context that you've chosen. So go ahead and talk to a few people and uh, discuss what that might be, and we'll come back here in a minute. Okay, let's go ahead and discuss. Let's bring it in. Um, I'm going to take a moment now, and I'm going to take some time to reflect on the service mandate. Um, Again, the definition of the service mandate, this call that we see throughout Scripture, is to point to the love of Christ through lives of self-giving service. So if stewardship is pointing to the glory of the Father, the service is pointing to the self-giving love of the Son. We have come to know and adore and benefit from the self-giving love of Christ on the cross who defined His very mission and the reason He came to the earth in Mark 10, 43-45 like this. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That what Jesus did for us is He gave all of Himself, poured out for us, who gave Him the middle finger, who rejected Him. He loved us while we were His enemies. And that is for us to be reconciled to God. It is for us to delight in and to enjoy and to preach the Gospel to each other and remind each other that we have this, the wrath of God has been satisfied. That we are declared righteous before God because of the righteousness of Christ. That our sin has been paid for. And we should delight in it and it should fill us with joy. But the cross, the cross is not just the way God reconciles us to Himself, which it is. But the cross is also the path that His people are to walk. He lays the footsteps before us as if He's walking in the snow and then we follow in those same footsteps. The way of God's people is the way of the cross. Deliberately, intentionally taking our time, our resources, our physical health, our life, and pouring it out for the sake of another. 1 Peter 2.21 says this, For to this you have been called. Do you want to know what your calling is? For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. And before this, the context he's talking about is uh, suffering even in the midst of Uh, being slandered. Our calling is to follow in the footsteps of Christ who suffered for us by suffering for others. 
The death of Jesus is to be your path. This is what Robert Gelinas says. The death of Jesus is to be your path. When Christ took our place on the cross, He absorbed our pain, and now the church, a cross-formed community, is to be the pain-absorbing people. We're to be in this earth like sponges that move to the places of pain and absorb it into ourselves. That's what God did for us in Christ. That's what we do uh, for others in this world. I think of the second century Ethiopian church. And what happened was is there was a famine in the land. And what happened with this famine is that, that there wasn't enough food around, and so people were taking their babies and putting them on the altars of these, these idols, of these gods, and walking away. They didn't have food to feed the babies. They wanted to ration the food for themselves. So the church decided that we are going to care for those babies. And they just went looking for the idols and taking more babies into their home, even though they knew that there was a famine in the land. And they went beyond just that one step of adoption. They sacrificed to create systems to where the babies could stay with their families. They had nursing mothers continue to nurse. And they went around to all the people and they said, don't put your baby on those, those uh, idols. Don't give them away. But care for them. And we will have women who will come walk through your neighborhood every day and help feed those babies if they're hungry. And they organized the church around that. The church was known for growing. Rodney Stark writes about this. That when there were these big plagues uh, in the early church, that instead of moving away from people, the Christian church was the, was the community that welcomed people into their very homes, even though it meant sometimes that they would get sick themselves and die. This is the path that we're called to walk. And it's usually not so dramatic as like making this decision where you're going to like uh, have to take in someone who, who has like a... a uh, there's like a plague in the land. But every day we wake up and we look at the various aspects of our life, the things we leverage for ourselves, and say, how can I leverage them for the sake of the other? How can I die a little bit, manifest the cross a little bit to show it to, to the rest of the world? Um, <clears throat> the self-giving love of Christ manifests the life and death of Jesus to the world. If you get some time, I would encourage you to read 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 7-12 through 12, about how Paul in his suffering is showing the world what Christ did for them. You even see this again in Colossians 1.24 where, where Paul says something strange. He says um, that in his flesh, in, in, his, he's, in his sufferings, he's filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, if it weren't Paul, that would sound pretty heretical, right? What's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That should kind of bother us if we haven't studied that passage. What's lacking in the afflictions of Christ? What's lacking in what Jesus did on the cross? If I overheard someone say that statement who wasn't the Apostle Paul, I'd be like, the cross is sufficient, shut your mouth. This is, there's nothing lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So what could he possibly be talking about there? 
Well, what's lacking of the afflictions, uh, what's lacking with the afflictions of Christ is not the work in and of itself. It's that so many people don't know about it. They haven't heard about it. They haven't heard about what Jesus did for them on the cross and in his life, death and resurrection. And Paul says, how do they come to know? How do we fill in that gap? He says, through his sufferings. Through his suffering, he is dramatizing to others what Jesus did on the cross. He's putting on a little mini play of this is what God did for you in Christ. What I'm doing is minuscule compared to what he did, but it's of the same nature, and it's from him. Self-giving love is the greatest apologetic for the cross. I've known many Muslims who've come to know Jesus, and the cross is one of those stumbling blocks that they don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. And I have never seen a Muslim argued into understanding the cross or seen someone explain it well enough to where they said, oh, you know what, great point. He probably did die on the cross. That probably is a, the, the way the world works, way to think of it. No one has ever come up with a good enough argument to lead someone to, to, to fully embrace the cross. And I haven't known anyone that the means was just a pure argument, an apologetic. But the way that most Muslims I know who have come to know Jesus have come to behold the cross is in seeing people suffer on their behalf and dramatize the cross for their sake. When they're in danger, putting themselves, someone putting, a Christian putting themselves in harm's way for them. When they're suffering to give of their time, their money, their resources to be with them in the midst of that suffering and together to walk shoulder to shoulder to alleviate that, that suffering. I'll tell you one story about something that played out this summer. You, many of you in this room probably heard about it or were, were there. I actually know several people were there. But on May 28th, there was this guy, uh, his name was John. He decided to organize this rally uh, at a mosque. Um, and it, he called it the Freedom of uh, Speech Rally, uh, where what he was going to do is uh, burn Qurans outside of the mosque, he was going to draw offensive pictures of Muhammad. Everyone was going to come armed. They were going to yell really hostile things to the Muslim folks who were going in to worship that evening. They were doing this in response to the, the fact that uh, a few of the shooters in Texas who had like jihadist intentions um, had come from that mosque. So they said, you know what? We're going to show up and we're going to protest them. We're going to get really mad. Everybody bring their guns. And we're going to have hundreds of people outside the mosque. Just put yourself in the shoes for that, of that for a moment. What would it be like if at your church you showed up and there were 200 armed Hindu folks burning the Bible or ripping it, drawing pictures of Jesus, doing some of the most lewd things you could ever imagine? Would you, what would you think about Hinduism, right? But what would you, how would you feel? You'd be afraid. So what we decided to do is actually, I'll tell you, my first initial intention was to do my civic duty and post my disgust on Facebook and just be done with it. 
but then someone who knows the gospel better than I do. Uh, A woman in our church said, Jim, you cannot just post about something like that when it's happening in our hometown and not do something. You yourself know the, the president of that mosque. So she was right. So what we did is we decided to um, gather some people together, and we weren't, we weren't coming to be against the protesters. We weren't coming to be for Muslims. We were very clear that we do not believe the same thing as Muslims, and we want them to know Jesus. But what we said is, is it's not right for that to happen in our city, and, it, and we wanted to display the love of Christ. So what we decided to do is get to the mosque early before those protesters got there. We were going to be on the sidewalk closest to the mosque, occupy that sidewalk, so the first thing that the Muslim folks would see when they came out of the mosque were friendly faces in the name of Jesus. We wanted to be a, 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 a peaceful presence that would pray and uh, hope to de-escalate the situation. And honestly, um, the, this guy Adam, Estelle, and I, we, we sort of organized this, and we were not expecting many people. ISIS had been tweeting about it that day, like ISIS Twitter account saying, hey, don't go to that place because it's going down. The dudes who were showing up to protest, they didn't bring little, like, handguns and stuff. They brought, like, AR-15s, and they were wearing masks and bulletproof vests. And uh, so that's not a party that you invite people to that a lot of people show up to, Right? We, sh- we, we showed up, uh, there were about 10 of us, and I thought, this is what it's going to be, and I was dumbfounded. <laughs> Hundreds of people came out, from about 10 to 15 different churches, I counted, in the name of Jesus, to stand in front of a bunch of armed people, and to pray for them, and to say that we would be a human shield, and that if any anyone started shooting at our Muslim friends, the bullets would have to go through us first. When the guys started yelling louder, we prayed louder. We brought brought, uh, water to people on both sides. We tried to use humor to de-escalate the situation. I went over to the other side and I asked them, I told those guys, I said, hey, um, I'm not, I don't ask, I want to ask much of you, but if you could just do me one favor, just one solid, I'd really appreciate it. And they're like, yeah, what is it? Like, don't shoot me. <laughs> like, that would ruin my weekend. And if you start shooting, I'm a fat guy. They're all running behind me. So, like, I'm toast. And, you know, it cut the tension a little bit. But uh, as we were there that day, seeing hundreds of Christians and then the friends of those Christians, not protesting and yelling, but just holding up a little sign that said, love your neighbor, and praying, and being a physical barrier to potentially absorb the pain that might be directed at our Muslim friends. The night ended without a single shot fired, a single punch thrown, not a single arrest, and and some of the folks on that side went and apologized to the leaders of that mosque. I cannot tell you how much of an opportunity has come from that. And we don't do it for that opportunity. It's not a means to an end. It's the right way. But in, I, in my conversations with Muslims, it is hard to communicate the, the cross. But over these last several months, 
uh, they've been intrigued by the nature of the faith of the people in this city, the various churches that would come together and do that. And I have never had so much of an opportunity to lift up and point to Jesus, the one who suffered and died for them, as I did in my entire time of living in Turkey. And if we can do this on a small scale, day in, day out, looking at the resources of our life and leveraging them for the sake of the other, pouring them out for the sake of the other, they're going to taste a little morsel and get a little glimpse of the incredible self-giving love of Christ. Uh, a, few, a few other thoughts. This can range uh, from interpersonal to institutional. Uh, a lot of times when we think of love and sacrificing for others, we think of interpersonal interactions, which I think is good. But we also need people who are sacrificing to um, make institutional changes or to set up institutions uh, that, that, that bless and serve others. So, for instance... The civil rights movement was an example of that. People uh, suffering well, not just in an interpersonal relationship, but to change some of the structures of society so that their neighbors could flourish and pouring themselves out and putting themselves in harm's way. Um, This includes all people, especially enemies and those who are overlooked. What's incredible about the gospel is that God died for us while we were his enemies. And then Jesus calls us to love our enemies, give to our enemies, pour ourselves out to our enemies. And I don't think this is saying that you should have an enemy. Like if you, like you shouldn't just walk around and like have arch rivals as if you were like Batman or Superman or something like that. But this, in that day, the idea of enemy had to do with the people in society who were, who were set up to be the other from you. Um, the political, the religious, the ethnic other. And what it's saying is that we are called to cross those boundaries and to love those who it offends that you love. It's to love others when they don't love you well. And when the church... Uh, suffers for uh, those who get overlooked or those that you're not supposed to engage with. For instance, people left our church when we did that with Muslims. They were offended by it. But that's the particular thing that you're called to do as Christians is to love your enemies. And I don't view Muslims as my enemy, but the way the world sets it up and frames it as Christians and Muslims are enemies. And even looking for the most vulnerable and not just suffering for those who can give us uh, a great reward, but to, to, to pour ourselves out uh, for, for those who don't have as much privilege. Um, and then finally, uh, self-giving service should be thoughtful, creative, and helpful, not just a gesture. Um, Jesus gives us, in the great commandment, the most beautiful strategy for self-giving love when he says to love your neighbor as yourself. It seems like such a simple statement, right? Like, we probably all have an aunt that has, like, sewed that into this little, like, thing that she hangs on the wall. Love your neighbor as yourself. It sounds like Hallmark material, like, like greeting card material. But it is 
strategic and gnarly. What Jesus is essentially saying here when he says to love your neighbor as yourself is he's giving you the strategy and the resources with which you are to love others. He's saying you are already an expert at loving people. You're a master of it because you do it for yourself every day. So take stock of the things that you use for yourself, your education, your home, your networks of of friends, your money, the recipes you've learned, the skills that you have. All of those things that would generally be used for yourself and that you've spent a lifetime mastering uh, to, to, to use for yourself, figure out a way to leverage those for the sake of another. You're already good at it. Figure out how to give it to uh, another. And so there's not just, uh, there's a call to taking stock of our lives and, and thinking of how we can use all these things for another, but there's also a call to creativity, a call to, to thinking about unique and thoughtful ways that you can be a blessing with the stuff that you have. So love isn't just supposed to be a sentiment. Love should be one of the most innovative things that we do when we love our neighbor. We should be like the Steve Jobs of loving others. You know how he's got, he would have like creative ideas and whiteboards full of stuff. We should be constantly thinking about those things. And so I would encourage you to to uh, develop a discipline where you often reflect on and, and dream up creative ways to, to, to leverage the resources you have for the sake of another. Uh, John Calvin says, all the blessings we enjoy are divine deposits committed to our trust on this condition that they should be dispensed for the benefit of our neighbors. God gives it to us so that we can figure out creative ways to give it to another. So you'll see in your surge reader a little game or an activity that I came up with called uh, the carrot cake game. And I'm sorry, we didn't actually describe why it's called the carrot cake game in there. But my, my, my thought was it, that I wondered, how does carrot cake get invented? Because that's a weird thing. Who puts carrots in cakes, right? So here's how I think it happened. I think what people did is they, they had someone coming over for dinner. There was a problem. They had someone coming over for dinner, and they didn't have any dessert for them. So they went and they looked in the cupboard, and they said, what do we have here that we could give them? And they looked, and they had some sugar, some, some flour, and they had some carrots, and they just said, let's give it a shot. This is what we have. Let's think of a creative way that it could be uh, a gift to the person that's coming over. And in the same way, we are to look into the cupboard of our lives and say, this is what I got. These, this is who I am, what I know, what I do. How can I figure out how to arrange this in some, such a way that it helps delight and make others flourish, that God would use it in that way? So I'm going to give you a moment now to brainstorm with the people around you um, some ways to do this. So the activity or the practice I gave you on page 5 is to, on the column in the left to list out various resources that you have. Your education, skills, abilities, money. And then, so I want you to take about one minute to write some of those down. And then once you've, you've done that, 
turn to your neighbor and start discussing, just brainstorm ideas about how you can leverage those things uh, for the good of another. So go ahead and do that now. Okay, I know I haven't given you sufficient time, um, but for the sake of time so we can get our, our panel started, we're going to move on. Um, I would encourage you, coming out of this meeting, to, to just set some time on your calendar. Set apart like a half day even. To, to sit down and reflect on how you can intentionally engage these three mandates more and use these exercises that we've uh, provided for you in here. But let me just quickly talk about the speaking mandate and then we'll have the panel come up. <clears throat> the speaking mandate. Pointing the way to God through the verbal proclamation of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. So if the stewardship mandate is pointing to the glory of God his, through the, the way we display His actions and attributes in all of life, pointing to the glory of the Father. And the service mandate is pointing to the self-giving love of the Son. The speaking mandate is to participate with the Spirit in verbally proclaiming the Gospel to others. And it must be verbally proclaimed. People, I think, misquote, actually, St. Francis of Assisi and say that preach the Gospel always and when necessary use words. I think they kind of take him out of context. Listen, if we're preaching the Gospel, it's words. It needs to be words. Um, it, the, the Gospel comes through the, the, the Word of God through the medium of people most often. Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. Hear Paul's logic in this. He says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, uh, Lord, who has believed that he has heard us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In order for people to believe in this good news, it, the way it comes is it comes through hearing or reading. But they need to hear this message. And how beautiful is it that God ordained to speak the most beautiful words that would ever be spoken and give the most hospitable, reconciling invitation that would ever be extended through the mouth of His image bearers. What a privilege to hold in our mouths the words of the best news that anyone could ever hear. And so it is you do not need to feel bad if you are engaging with your work in faithfulness and you don't need to share the gospel in every moment to justify your good work. And you don't need to pursue justice in the world and pour yourself out in the world to validate that by slipping in the gospel somewhere. But just because we validated stewardship and service doesn't mean we are invalidating the verbal proclamation of the gospel. They're all parts of the great symphony of mission that we participate in. Colossians 4, 2-6 talks about uh, uh, the, the prayer for needing both boldness and gentleness. 
in our proclaiming. Respect and wisdom. The Spirit should guide when, where, how. This isn't that we are salespeople on behalf of, of, of God who are just given a high-pressured pitch and He's in the corporate office somewhere. But we are walking with the Spirit and the Spirit is bringing up things in people's lives, giving us insights into who they are and how to speak into them. And so we need to be sensitive to the Spirit as we proclaim the good news. The Gospel is unchanging but is constantly communicated with different illustrations, images, stories, and analogies depending on the context. And if you were to do a study of of everything before Acts 13 and then beyond Acts 13, you would see that they proclaim the gospel in different ways depending on if you're a Jew or a Gentile. There is a a, a context that people live in. And while the gospel doesn't change, the way that we communicate it often does. And so good uh, missionaries always look at the context and are looking for the metaphors and analogies that communicate the gospel into the particular context that people live and address the particular questions that they are asking. We need to, to, to reflect on what are the questions that people are asking of which Jesus is the answer. 1 Peter 3.15, uh, what we see there in, in, in Colossians 4 is this the importance of giving, being thoughtful and prepared in how we speak. There is something dynamic that happens with the Spirit in the moment, but we should also, in our times alone with the Lord, be writing down the questions that we know that people are asking, thoughtfully thinking and praying about how we can communicate the good news to them. So the practice I'm, I'm going to give you, and you can, uh, we're just going to give you one little part of this now, um, is, is a little practice that I, I call Gospel Echoes. Um, and I have a few questions here uh, that you, we can start now, but you'll want to reflect on later. And it's essentially, think about the people, places, processes, systems, events, physical objects, that are connected to your missional focus? Is there anything that can be used to illustrate some aspect of the gospel story? Is there anything that might be a bridge to a gospel conversation? So for instance, with the nature of God, are there illustrations or analogies that might help people understand God's attributes or actions in that context? Or look at creation. Uh, Where do you see the goodness, the truth, and the beauty that reflects the brilliance of God's creation? So look around your office. Look around your neighborhood. And where are those nuggets of the beauty of God's creation that you can use as a springboard to show the nature of the Creator? The fall. Where have you seen evidence of sin and brokenness in your specific context? And how can you talk about redemption? How how is Jesus the answer to that specific brokenness? And restoration. How does God's future restoration bring hope to your specific context. So I would reflect on these questions first and foremost for your own delight in the gospel. I think that that's the key. If you ever find yourself struggling in your proclamation of the gospel, most people attend to trying to find better words. But I would say that maybe what you should do is you should listen more. 
Listen to what's going on in people's lives and look for where God is already at work there. Um, to illustrate this, I, when I was learning Turkish, they said whenever your pronunciation was off, they told you to stop trying to pronounce it. That's kind of strange, right? You would think that you would pronounce it. You would focus on getting your pronunciation better. But they said, no, don't try to pronounce it better. But what we're going to do is we're going to take you through a series of exercises so that you can hear those words better. Because the problem is not with your tongue, it's that you're hearing it incorrectly. And if we were people who were absolutely obsessed with God's activity in the world, and that we spent all of our time looking for his beauty and grandeur in creation that we could point others to. When we saw the effects of the fall, we wouldn't just become cynical, but we would mourn and lament and, and reflect on how Jesus is going to make that right one day. If we really thought through the brokenness of this world and how Jesus is the good news, and if we spent our time envisioning a day when God renews and restores all things and gets rid of all the things that ought not be, if we spend our time dwelling on these things, they're going to be so embedded in us that people won't even be able to stop the words coming out of our mouth. And so uh, if you're struggling there, I would say just immerse yourself in that gospel so that it's overflowing out of you. I want you to do, uh, with the people in the room, just a, a quick little exercise. Pick one of these. I'm going to say... Uh, creation. Where do you see goodness, truth, and beauty that reflects the brilliance of God's creation in your particular context? And, uh, and, and so reflect on that with the people around you. And while we're doing that, we're going to bring the panel up and we're going to open it up for questions and uh, have some Q&A and some panel time.